You're listening to Oblivion. It is February 5th, 2024. Well, David, of course, the biggest news of the week. Why did it happen last night? Taylor Swift breaks records. Gets her lucky 13th Grammy. Oh, man, I feel so good. The world is a fair, prosperous place. Uh, the hierarchy is, is what I thought. And the, there was another one. <laughs> but uh, the benevolent queen has gotten an, yet another award. <laughs> and then I believe she won um, another award at the end of the Grammys. Oh, and really? There was an, yeah. Um, and then there was another uh, big award. I don't remember exactly what the categories are, but of course there's there's best song, there's best album, and maybe like just best musician, mm-hmm. best artist overall. Right. There was another one where uh, Billy uh, Eilish was one of the nominees, and it's like it'll be her, and <laughs> it was. Uh-huh. And I think that Billy Eilish's music is awesome uh-huh. so and i don't have like i said before taylor swift is fine and i was making the parallel between what's going on now and the late 60s and to me taylor swift is the beatles of today mm. like her stuff isn't bad but the main thing she has going for is this sort of mob, mass, frenzied following, popularity. Yeah, right? I, I have a hard time making many connections with the Beatles, basically, because, I mean, really, they the, their popularity sort of pioneered the, um, well, first of all, the songwriting group that writes their own songs. That was kind of the big thing. Uh, that uh, they showed that could be uh, popular, um, you know, inspired many other bands, their success, uh, try their own it, thing. It's almost bizarre to think of a band not writing their own song. Like, right. how is that even a band, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, before then, it was, wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, a feature of, of many bands, uh, you know, you had the Mo- well, you had the Motown I, people that you know they had, there were great writers that wrote the songs, right? Uh, many of those songs had great writers, but they weren't necessarily in the band, which is fine. I mean, some people, um, uh, I don't know, uh, but I'm always impressed. There are performers and there are songwriters, and they don't always necessarily yeah. Well, I, I was just thinking of, of prime example, very much collaborative. a prime very example, collaborative. Um, you know, maybe Beyonce writes her crappy songs. Um, well, oh, Madonna is the one that's, I, you know, she doesn't never wrote her own songs, I don't think, which is kind of what makes Madonna pretty lame compared to these other artists. You know, sure, she was a good singer and, and she had the image celebrity thing going but she didn't performer extraordinaire yeah yeah quite the show and of course like beyonce i don't know about taylor swift this is probably the case is basically when they do a concert it's all production 
you know, they lip sync. They're not actually performing. <laughs> They're just dancing around, right? And it's a it's a show, but uh, you know, I'd be surprised if Taylor Swift actually sings. That's pathetic. Yeah, is that it? is pathetic. Yep. That's I mean, that's not even anything, man. <laughs> that's just a bunch of garbage. I, that's so right. sad. I mean, well, I, I, right. I, I was really so tuned. Well, it was really tuned in uh, to me back. Uh, it was actually probably Obama's first inauguration and Beyonce sang, you know, national anthem or some shit. And, uh, one of the, one of the songs and, uh, uh, you know, cold day or whatever. And, uh, what was that, uh, formerly country star that used to be American Idol? She was like the first American Idol. You were talking about her last week. Um, uh, Kelly Clarkson. Uh, so, so she sang, like first and then Beyonce sang and Beyonce sang and you know I thought both of them actually sang well clear Kelly Clarkson actually did sing whereas Beyonce didn't she lip-synced the thing and you would have had no idea because she's a super pro man I mean she does that <laughs> at the, every one of these concerts right she knows how to make herself seem like she's singing the song uh now she I'm sure she sang the original uh, right, but uh, right. So it's her singing, but not actually doing it yeah. on stage. And, and the next, so that's yeah, very weird. If you and, yeah, and the next day she had a press conference, and and of course she sings the song to everybody at the press conference and shows everybody she can actually sing. And her response was, you know, why did she lip sync? It was like, you know, I didn't want to embarrass the president if I didn't perform it right because it was real cold and. You know this, that, and the other, and it's like Good what? A, yeah, what a what a coward! Coward! Just a just a little plastic plastic baby, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that with Taylor Swift. I, we'll do some research and see whether or not she actually performs at her concerts. Well, I'm uh, glad to hear that about Kelly Clarkson because mm-hmm. it affirms my uh, my uh, admiration. Yeah. And you could, and you could definitely tell that she, uh, saying it, she was actually, you know, it was like when Beyonce was coming up after she was done, she was like shaking her head, boy, that was hard, you know, and uh, of course then Beyonce, you know, real hard for her. So Kelly Clarkson also played for the Obamacon. <laughs> she she sang at the the you know the whatever the inauguration. Inauguration. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you know, he, he was the shining, uh, well, not to get too far into this, but if I, if I may just follow up on my comparison between the Beatles and, and, and Taylor Swift, it really wasn't so much an artistic comparison as it was to draw attention to the, the huge popularity that both of them had at the time, as I think being the main reason for their prominence in the era in which they uh, performed. Yeah, yeah. Because, and I am totally open to response and debate, and and maybe I am... You're wrong! Selling, <laughs> selling the Beatles short. But when it comes to the counterculture, the, the 60s music, man... For me, the Beatles are not even close to the first and even the peripheral batch of the main bands that I think about. 
I mean, really, I have never gone out of my way to listen to a a Beatles song ever. I mean, I do think the Beatles are very overrated. Yeah, I disagree. I think I think if you watched, um, uh, the, do you think they were new... one of the best bands of the '60s? Yeah, I really do. Um, yeah, I think they're. Right, you know, well. of course, their their very first songs, "Love Me, Love Me Do," you know, they grew. Well, sure, and the Doors have "Hello, I Love You." Right, and I mean that's that's the thing that I think that shows that they were actual artists is that they grew. Right, they. That's they, a great point. That yeah. is a great point. Yeah, and they definitely did. I mean, uh, you know, they had they had problems in that they were so mm. super popular. Mm. They they were so super excellent point there. Yeah, they were so super popular that they Just couldn't they could out. they couldn't do a concert right because back in those days, uh, you know the sound systems were just you know they hadn't really developed uh, the sound systems that didn't really happen till if they had had a hundred thousand people screaming yeah there would have been no way to hear them yeah totally I mean even if you've got three thousand. 2,000 people scream, probably 500 screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, they had these small amps, uh, like in, in the documentary, the anthology documentary for the Beatles. It's like uh, they played Shea Stadium, and this was, I don't know, 60, You know, and Tiny could have gotten all of them to have been quiet. <laughs> yeah, in Shea Stadium, they put them out in the middle of the uh, ball field. And, so that uh, there would be some distance, and they could. Well, I mean, yeah, I I don't know, but all they had was hundred watt amps, uh, which were specially made for the show. Before then, the, all amps were like the biggest one single amp was like sixty watts, and um, and you know, and of course you've got sixty thousand people that are screaming at the top of their lungs. I mean, you could, they could probably hardly hear themselves out in the middle of the ball field, right? You know? Uh, so uh, since then, I mean, I'm sure a stadium now, you would have 50,000, 100,000 watts of power, uh, you know, big arrays of speakers everywhere. The, sp- the sound would be awesome, right? <laughs> They've really developed it since then. But in those days, you couldn't. So what I'm getting at is that they were driven off the road because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't enjoy themselves because they couldn't hear themselves play. It was just a joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, so they, so they just became studio band, and so that's kind of when they developed. Uh, was after that point was they which right, says something spent... about uh, solitude, right? And right. That maybe it's not such a great thing to just be consumed with this popularity, right? Yeah, Having. Yeah. This uh, presence and and always being on, on the road. Maybe there's something to that. Th- yeah, those are yeah. really two really excellent right. points now. To think so about in terms of- so now we come to today with Taylor Swift. She as this you know first of all it's just a uh, a well oiled like machine. machine. Yeah, it's a well oiled machine. They've they've got a huge crew of 100 200 people that goes in there, puts in the sound systems. Uh, you know, these sound systems sound great. These huge um, screens everywhere, you know, that are 200 feet tall. For their, you know. So basically, you're, you're going to a giant media presentation is what a concert is. And, you know, they're, I don't they're think pretty... Taylor Swift has done LSD. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, it would be interesting. Has anybody ever asked her? I mean, does she even smoke pot? I mean, that's definitely not part of her brand. It's definitely never, nobody brings that up, right? Yeah, I mean. So it's, um, it's interesting that, you know, it doesn't even happen. definitely is an asset. I mean, that everything about her is just so much to the, like, with Billie Eilish is in some ways, I, I think, uh, raw and natural, which is what I think an artist is. Like Swift is obviously talented and she's smart, but she really just seems cunning and and calculating. Mm-hmm. And here's one thing that and, I know and very like, and very shallow and um, yes, I, yeah. shallow is a good word. And that, to me, that means non-artist, right? Like yeah. if you're an artist, you can't be shallow. I like you can be a person and be shallow, and that doesn't mean we have to deride you although it doesn't mean that we don't deride you either <laughs> but to be an artist deride you're shallow but here's the thing tell me what you think about this taylor swift's speech after she wins her 13th grammy basically what it turns into she says and i've got a secret and everybody oh whoa. right so sort of this way of uh, engaging the audience of I'm again, just the center of attention. I'm already the center of attention and I've made myself the center of attention within being the center of attention. And it's like, I've got a new album and everybody's got to go berserk. So like, there's just nothing about like what, what inspires her music or other people or other things that are going on. Uh, I'm not saying that she's, uh, bad and you can't blame a person if they have had a lot of success for feeling good about themselves and again i don't think there's i don't dislike anything well about her. but, I mean, even but let's let's is, but the re, the thing that you can say that is bad in the sense that it's bad because um you were comparing it to the counterculture it's totally safe no, no politics extracted right. from politics which means it has politics right it has like a sure. uh, la la land poli- don't pay attention to politics politics right Shake uh, just, it off. just pay attention to me there's no you know um you know that's the name of one of her hit songs you know shake it off uh-huh, line that you know uh-huh. haters are gonna hate so right, on and right, so yeah, on yeah. which is a way of saying uh it's it's very much like what marx it says about it's a form of uh, opium, right? It's, her music is is an opiate. It's a taming, uh-huh, right, sedating. Right. Uh-huh. She's cool. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're paying attention to everything that doesn't matter. <laughs> would Jim Morrison do a credit card commercial? <laughs> does she do c- commercials? Of course she does. Oh, right. definitely, big yeah. time. I mean, that's the main way that I know her, and that's also oh, wow. non-artist. That, that shows you she's just a yeah, yeah, a money price, money uh, machine. She's not an artist, right? Self-absorbed, uh, uh, a money money machine. So yeah, with the, on the, that basis, uh, which makes her art suck, right? I mean, uh, it just shows that you can't have good art if she's that. Right. I mean, this this does not happen. Right. Uh, I, I say I, I'm, I'll agree with you, but I think that really I wouldn't just leave it at that. I would just say 
her music in and of itself just isn't all that great. Yeah, right. I mean, it, and like, it's reflected. It's a loop, right? It's uh, you can't media products like this cannot produce actual I know, actual Mick art. Jagger uh, did a commercial, like sold uh, vintage clothing or, or oh. something. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. Maybe he did. I'm I'm just using an example. Well, just, the Rolling all I'm saying is the Rolling the Stones definitely part. aren't a good example of you know because they're like famously you know total money grubbing sellout band, right? <laughs> they're constantly but they're uh, doing an awesome like, band. Yeah, they're awesome. Uh, okay, you don't think so? Well, maybe once upon a time, um, they were never my you know favorite or whatever but anyway i mean i don't mix jaggard's voice is horrific i mean sure he can write a few good songs i'll give him that um yeah sure they're all right yeah, they've always but, been one of my favorites yeah but they good. have they produced anything in the last uh 40 years it's you can remember. oh no sure they're, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're definitely yeah. kind of a uh a sideshow. I mean, there, there are still a few people like, uh, you know, Willie Nelson. I just saw a cool, he, it was probably won the Grammy. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, it was up for, it was a Willie Nelson and Billy Strings song. Billy Strings is this young guy, you know, late twenties, 30. Uh, I, I've seen Billy Strings. Yeah. Oh, you, star player. Uh huh. Yeah. You, you saw him in actual concert or. No, no, I just, you, meant, yeah. Um, yeah, so he, they had this song, you know, it was like, tell, I, tell uh, the, I saw the video, I'm, I don't know if you've, you've seen it, look look it up if if you can, it's Billy Strings and Willie Nelson, it's Billy Strings' song, and uh, he wrote the song, but he was saying, you know, I'm not going to put this song out unless Willie sings with me, because it's like a Willie song, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like a parody of his song, so it's the song is basically, uh, you know, I used to you know, party hard on, I don't know, bad drugs or, you know, it's, it's all innuendo, right? But now it's like, you know, I have a California, what, what is it? It's called California Sober. Yeah, that's what it's called, I think, the song is. That's uh, funny because one of our episodes was called that. Um, so I, I guess that means you smoke pot, right? <laughs> uh, that's your drug that you do now. Uh and uh, so they're both. Yeah, California oh, sober means you're not you're not a meth head. Uh -huh. but not. You just smoke pot. And uh, right. so Willie and him are, are smoking a J the whole time that they're doing the video. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So uh, anyway, California I, I hope I hope they won the the Grammy for that. California is is where I'm going to start uh, my uh, musical tour. And. Um, that's going to be happening here uh, shortly in this month of February. I thought while there is an atmospheric river drowning the state, this would be a good time as any to go. And um, I have actually, I'm glad I, I thought about this, the meaning to bring, bring this up, but I've sent you some recordings via email. You may have seen them and, wondered like exactly what it was i don't know if you listened to any of them have you seen any emails from me that are recordings perhaps uh i don't think so have you sent some um well i'll check um my my uh sent box uh later 
But anyway, I thought as part of a big project is that you might be able to listen to these and like uh, mix them or uh, funkify them with some sort of a technological enhancement. But yeah, I'm gonna. I've been working on a lot of uh, uh, music lately, and I think it's time for me to hit the road and start uh, playing live. What do you think about that, man? <laughs> well, uh, sure. Uh, that's it's it's tough, man. You got a lot of competition. You uh, usually you don't make any money, so it's. Uh... Uh, if you want to starve and be homeless, um, um, sounds like a plan. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Words of encouragement. So yeah, let's, uh, why, why were you saying I about the, golly. so uh, to tie this into Gaza, um, in the, in, in the, uh, in memoriam segment of the Grammys, uh-huh. Uh, someone came on and, uh, I can't remember uh, who she was, but she came on to sing, uh, nothing compares to you, the Sinead O'Connor song. And of course, Sinead O'Connor was one of the, uh, people who passed away in the previous year. And so she came up on the screen along with the others who had, and of course there was a particular applause and attention yeah, she converted. She, came, she converted to Islam, I think. Uh, she she did. So here's the thing: when this song was over, the performer said, "Artists for ceasefire, peace in the world." Mm-hmm. And within a millisecond of her finishing saying that, it cut away and went to something else. So they cut her mic, basically. Well, they they just went away from that whole segment and went into something else, whether I don't know if it was they just I don't think they went straight to commercial, but they went to some other. I heard that Annie Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics also said a a ceasefire um, free Palestine thing. Okay, well, that's great. I mean, I was glad that. And when I saw the New York Times this morning, let's see if it's art. We're talking about art. That's art. When that happens, Uh I'm excited. That's art. Taylor Swift didn't mention anything about Palestine. That is a great point. (laughs) Great point number three. Taylor Swift did not happen to mention Gaza. You know, obvious it's not trivial, but yeah, that's. Yeah, Yeah, they they mentioned. uh, some women caused controversy. They, um, and I guess that was the Palestinian uh, stuff on the New York Times, but they've already dropped any mention of controversy. Uh, you know, yeah, how, you know, how could that even be controversial, for one thing? I, mean, I guess it's controversial because you're Stop being... Stop killing po- people. If you're a necrophiliac, <laughs> it's controversial. <laughs> if you're a corpse monger... Uh, so uh, you had, you had, uh, yeah, let's jump before we go talk a little bit more about, uh, Gaza. I mean, what is there to say other than it's uh, well, nonstop horror? Uh, Rafa in 
in Gaza. That's oh. the place at the southernmost point in Gaza where they're all backed up against the Egyptian border. It's been the one kind of safe haven, right? Go right. as far south as you can and basically put your back up against the wall against the Egyptian border. And that's another thing that's so nightmarish about this is that they really can't go anywhere, you know, and the whole world is just letting this happen. It's a disgrace. It's it's just a complete disgrace. And I have to demand that that Democrats, because we can get into the <laughs> Joe Biden with his um his uh his grin walking around like he's just you know got the world like by the balls like he always has since the early eighties. Where at his uh, where am I look? Right. Right, but he's got the slick smile down. Yeah, his psychopath smile, right, yeah. Psychopath smile, perfect. I think that's a episode title right there. <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> Psycho smile, for short. Um, a good song title as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Psycho smile. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's like... Uh, no, no feeling or emotion or empathy or uh, well, uh, con- conscience thing. behind the smile. It's like uh, does Taylor Swift have a psycho smile? <laughs> uh, and d- definitely a fake smile. It uh, maybe more like an actor's smile. Uh, I don't know. Right, but she doesn't bankroll genocide. I mean, as an asset, she generates the money. We talked about. It's been a while, but the Sohan Otani contract, just this unbelievable. It won't be long before somebody gets a billion dollars. There's going to be a billion dollar um, baseball player. <laughs> when does uh, uh, but the idea of of having these insane salaries, right? Because this is a question that I think both of us have asked like good god once you start getting to like five million a year six million like how can there even be that much money in the first place where does it all come from why does any one person need so much and that's exactly why you you want to have these assets you want to have this hierarchy to generate this insane amount of money because that is what bankrolls genocide that's what bankrolls the slaughter so if you had a different kind of of system that was more egalitarian where the wealth was spread evenly it's not going to concentrate in in this way where you can uh you can generate such massive amounts of wealth right the the push the pushback against egalitarianism is that you're not generating as much wealth. I mean, it's distributed, but there isn't that much, right? And so you, so you think, well, but what's the problem? Like if people have enough, nobody's starving, like the whole idea of a basic universal income. Well, the problem is you can't get that war chest. That's the problem, right? And the problem with seeing this as capitalism 
is that you can't fight wars without governments. Governments fight wars. Private organizations don't fight wars. Now, of course, they make the weapons that are used in the wars, and that's exactly what the military-industrial complex is. Military, government, industrial, private. But in capitalism, you don't have the government as equal partner. If you have a situation where government is equal partner in everything, you really don't have any kind of private ownership straight up. I mean, that is a socialist, if not pretty much a communist system. If in all organizational uh, operations, the government is an equal partner, that there's, there's no situation where this is Joe's hamburger stand, and by God, Joe makes the burgers, and the government you know, stays out of it. They don't tell him, make it like this, only so much of the MSGs or whatever it is that goes in, and no hormones. Like He'll make his burgers if they taste good. The government doesn't put you in jail if you eat something that's, uh, a, what, what are they called, hyperpalatable foods? <laughs> like if he wants yeah. to sprinkle that stuff on there. So um, wars are fought by governments, and that's the whole charade, sham democracy, sham capitalism. We've got to have Taylor Swift. We've got to have Sohan Otani, right? We just have to let them keep skyrocketing as far up there and see those dollar signs go up, 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 up. You know, what do they want out of Taylor Swift? They want even more money, more popularity, more wealth generated from her. Same thing from Sohan uh, Otani, uh, now with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it's through that massive amount of concentrating wealth with these individuals, that's how you get the, uh, the war chest. But this isn't capitalism in the sense that it's uh, it's an economic system that's based around private ownership, supply and demand, and the government getting out of the way and really letting the people, for better or worse, do everything. Like They can run their own businesses, and they make their own decisions about how they're going to make money and how they're going to spend it. Yeah, but... but uh... You know the the socialist ideal is um, the people. Well, you know the communist manifesto terms are the you know the workers, but uh, I think it should just be broadened to the people um, owning the means of production um, together, right? Communally, um, you know it's shared. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, everybody, I agree with you. Everybody should be rich in that situation, right? Because uh, obviously, it's quite a productive. Uh, way to so, go, and it would be even more productive if it was a human based instead of uh, just under the profit base under under the um, private ownership of corporate power, right? So, um, yeah, I think I think that the 
you know, just real fast. One example that I think we both both agree with on that is, is the internet, right? That the internet, you have things like Google and Facebook that are private, but they're not private because the internet was developed through public research. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Should share in the wealth generated by the internet. They make it seem like Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and a few other of these super brains. Um, that's, again, the hierarchy that they made all of this and they did not. Right. You could have the idea. Like if Mark Zuckerberg is born 100 years earlier, he's just some weirdo who likes to think about, is this woman better looking than this one? Because that's. According to the movie, which is all I have to go on, I'm not going to spend <laughs> any more time thinking about this jackass. But that's how it all started. He was uh, he's so- socially uh, uh, awkward and abrasive, and his girlfriend breaks up with him, and he goes back to his dorm room, and he's looking at all these pictures of of the hot women, and he starts to think which one's hotter, and so he figures out how to broadcast that on the harvard internet and it just immediately soars to the roof and that's an interesting point to consider when you think about the idea of hierarchy because here's harvard here are all these like super smart the smartest of the smart not just from america but all over the world the the driven ambitious ones right while everybody else is just sitting on their ass jacking off and what do these people have nothing better to do and to sit around on the computer and jerk off and then click and say, this one's hotter than this one. That's Jerry Springer. I mean, that's just as white trash, like community college. <laughs> right? What's the difference is the point I'm making. And there is no difference, right? And that's where everything goes wrong, where we insist that as human beings, some of us are better than others. Taylor Swift, right? She's not even close to being the best musician among her peers, but she wins all of this stuff. And so that makes it a joke. But it's the point is, is that you, you've got to have it. Now, we can make a connection to another situation in which everybody should be owning and profiting. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Kentucky basketball, because that also ties into hierarchy. So you know who John Calipari is, right? The coach of Kentucky basketball. And he makes $9 million a year. And three seasons ago, Kentucky went 9-16. and 9-16. And, and they played. Do the math on that. That's 25 games, and they lost 16 of them. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. They, they tried. They tried, David. It's the worst season that Kentucky's ever ever had. But think of it this way. They won nine, David. I mean, that's much better than zero. Right. They didn't need, they could not even get to 10 wins. Now, it was the pandemic season, but it was the pandemic season for everyone. It wasn't like Kentucky had a pandemic and the rest of the country didn't. So it's just like it, it, it all, it was unraveling before that. And it, you saw it just completely fall apart in that season. That's a million dollars a win. So before I get into 
the game against Tennessee on Saturday, which Kentucky lost Uh-oh. for their third loss in four games. Uh-oh. Before I get into that, I want to follow up on, on your excellent point about how all of us should be sharing in the ownership of these things that are clearly generated from um, the public, right? right? From, mm-hmm. from uh, public uh, resources mm-hmm. and, and from uh, public energy and investment. Right. Uh, which, of course, would be uh, the university itself. Now think about this. We have the name, image, and likeness deal that is now kicked in for college athletes. Are, are you with me? And this says that finally that the that these people, even though they still have their amateur status, I'm an amateur player. Who's your coach? Oh, some guy that makes the nine million dollars a year. <laughs> Right. Amateur is I played Little League. Right. And the coach sold car insurance. And then so he didn't have to go home and deal with his miserable home life. He coached Little League and hit ground balls to a bunch of 10 year olds for a few hours. (laughs) Anyway, um, where was I? So this isn't amateur sports, but now these athletes, Olivia Dunn at LSU, a great gymnast. She's very attractive. Uh, she has a great smile. I would say you can tell, I mean, a person can smile for the camera and it's not a psycho smile. What's right? the, what's the name again? Olivia Dunn. I hope that's right. D U N N E. Yeah. That's but right. she's, made a lot of money selling this uh, clothing line designed for gymnasts, right? It looks nice. You know, you don't look like you're in this 1982 spandex. You don't look like you're uh, getting ready to Alan Shepard get in the mercury capsule, right? It's a nice looking (laughs) outfit. And she's does a good job of doing her backflips and showing how it's flexible. And uh, so great job, like good for her. But here's the problem with her, with the Kentucky players, basketball players that are making money. You can basically do commercials. You can do, you can do marketing, right? You can profit off of your own uh, name, image, and, and likeness. Uh, just like, for example, something like the cat's paws, can put a picture of the basketball team on its cover and they can make money because the fans see it and they're like, it's the Kentucky basketball team. Yeah, I'm going to buy that. Right. But it's the faces of these players that is selling the magazine and it's saying the players should make money on that too. So I agree, but here's the problem in all of this. If there's no such thing as the university of Kentucky, There's no such thing as Louisiana State University. Nobody cares who Olivia Dunn is, and nobody cares who the Kentucky basketball players are. Because you could take the same Kentucky basketball players, you could take those same individuals, and you could put them on a team that's called 
something else and you could put them in a league that is some other league other than the NCAA playing in the SEC conference. And no one would care. Just like you could take these, and let me give you an example. In, in the NBA, there's this thing called the G League. It's basically the minor leagues of professional basketball. So you could take this year's Kentucky team and you could say they're going to be a G League team, right? And they're called whatever. They're called the Rochester Jockstraps, (laughs) (laughs) right? No one is going to care who they are what they're doing, what their favorite kind of pasta is, right? Do they like Taylor Swift or not? How many con- how many Taylor Swift con- I guess that wouldn't be the question. The question would be, and how many Taylor Swift concerts have you been to? That's the question that you, that you, that you would ask them. Um, so here's the thing. Everybody in, in the state, if you're a resident of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you should be profiting, sharing in the profits generated by this basketball team. Because if there is no Commonwealth, there is no university. And if there is no university, there is no brand, there is no name, image, and likeness from which these players profit, right? And you've got to, like anything else, it has to be applied equally. If the players can profit from name, image, and likeness, then so should the public. There's no reason the public can't either. Here, like if you don't have, certainly the students, the entire student body, if you don't have a student body, you can't have a university. If you don't have a faculty, you can't have a university. If you don't have the city of Lexington, you can't have a university. So this thing, is generating all this wealth, and we say we've made everything equal because out of the tens of thousands of students and the hundreds of thousands of people who are living and working in the place where this university is, I mean, it can't just be there by itself. Here's a university, there's nothing else. There's no restaurants. There are no roads. There, there's no hospital. There's no electricians. There's no plumbers. There's no delivery trucks. Even if we had the delivery trucks, since there are no roads, right? I mean, think about it. Like this stuff is it can exist in thin air. It's the same idea that Zuckerberg and Bill Gates invented the internet and that they invented all of this stuff. You know, they didn't, they didn't do it by themselves. They're profiting off of the work, the collaborative work that was done over decades through again, public investment. There's no public investment. There's no university, no university. No one would care about these Kentucky basketball players. They wouldn't know who they were. They'd be completely meaningless. That brand and the fact that it's UK 
It's the big blue. And so it connects into this tradition that at this point goes back nearly 100 years. I mean, I think you're in the 1920s when uh, it's starting to get to be a big deal. Um, yeah, I'm getting some ideas here, David. I think if we want sports communism, especially UK, uh, we need uh, a blue communist star because the old red communist star is just not going to work. Uh, that's um, perfect, man. You're yeah. on a roll today, man. Yeah, yeah. Blue communist. Get to work on the T-shirts, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to wear that to the next... Um, uh, your your uh, <laughs> blue communism uh, um, t-shirt at the next your next uh, UK game. Um, yeah. So yeah, what's the bad news about uh, UK? Uh, I'm looking. Yeah, they got totally trounced by South Carolina. It looks like um, they did. That's the beginning of the losing streak. Now I think. Are you looking at their schedule? Their recent games. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, if I'm not mistaken, if you look up from South Carolina, the game before they played against Georgia and they played a brilliant game and they won that game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then it all fell apart, right? They lost to South Carolina. Uh, then I think the next game is they barely beat Arkansas. Let me. Like, uh, so like 64 to 58, something like that. Yeah, I'm going to the uh, their uh, UK's page. Okay, uh, it's loading. Uh, oh, well, yeah, anyway. Africa. They they trounced Africa. See, <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, George, the whole continent of Africa. <laughs> this is like an er German. Yeah, the global jam. One of the first games they've gone here from July. For Christ's sake, Germany, Canada, Africa, and then well, Canada. Well, that's been a big. <laughs> that's been another way that Kentucky basketball's turned into a sideshow. Uh, we're really seeing Kentucky get exposed now. Strength of schedule for, for Kentucky, as it has been for many seasons now, has been pretty bad. Not playing any non-conference road games. Yeah, not here, starting to here, here, here's the first. Well, I'll just read off uh, sure. the first one. Is Georgetown College. Uh, that's, a, that's a powerhouse team, right? Uh, Kentucky State, which is the traditional black uh, state Those would college, have been exhibition games. But go yeah. ahead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're we're still exhibitioning. New Mexico State, Texas A and M Commerce. Okay, That's, those are joke games. Go on. Then lost to Kansas. Uh, is next. So their first actual real game they lose. Uh, right. Stonehill. <laughs> Never even heard of that one. Where are they from? <laughs> Stonehill. That's cool. Um, St. Joseph's. Don't throw away. <laughs> yeah. St. Joseph's. Um, that was, that's a, that's a solid game. I mean, uh -huh. not every game has to be super hard, but uh -huh. Marshall the idea. Where's Marshall? Where's Marshall? In West Virginia. Oh, hmm. Uh, trounced them. Miami. Um, my, uh, cousin went there. Uh, let's see. They won that one. UNC Wilmington. Hmm. They lost to them. Whoa. Uh, Penn, Penn. That's all it says is Penn. So I don't know what that means. Uh, right. That's the that's the Ivy League team. 
But but the other thing is, with all these games that you're mentioning, except for the Kansas game, which was played in Madison Square Garden, Mm -hmm. all of these games were um, are at home, right? Mm -hmm. So you play all these home games, Mm -hmm. and they're all basically not going to be competitive. So now that Kentucky is in the thick of of SEC conference play, Mm -hmm. they are really starting to get uh, knocked around. Mm -hmm. They've lost three out of four. And the thing is, the South Carolina loss was a really bad loss. They lost two in a row. They lost to Florida in overtime since the South Carolina game. They've lost two in a row. So you have the South Carolina loss, Arkansas win, then Florida-Tennessee loss losses, both at home. That's three out of four. Florida's in overtime. Uh, Florida hits a three at the end of regulation uh, when Kentucky could have put the game away. And then against Tennessee, um, they lose 103 to 92. But here's where we see another mental meltdown Uh from the $9 million (laughs) man. Another $9 million meltdown. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So the player, Kentucky's best player is Rob Dillingham, who had an incredible game against Tennessee, scoring 35 points, going six of eight on three pointers. Now get this, Dillingham doesn't start. In the Tennessee game, he was the third player off the bench. So he's the he's number eight on the depth chart. You've got the five people who start, two people, two subs came in, then Dillingham comes in. You got that? The the guy who scored 35 points and went six of eight on threes is the third guy off the bench. That is how your <laughs> Hall of Fame coach, a million dollars to win, nine and sixteen guy thinks that this is the best way to play a basketball game. So here's how to break the game down. Dillingham didn't come in in the first half until the 15 minute, 46 second mark. Kentucky's behind 16 to five. So Kentucky's (laughs) minus 11, right? Dillingham comes in. Right away, he starts hitting threes. Right away, Kentucky gets back in the game. Dillingham picks up his second foul late in the first half with a minute and 15 seconds to go. By now, Kentucky has closed to within six points. It's, uh, it's 46 to, to 40. Dillingham uh, comes out of the game. Actually, okay, well, anyway, so it's, it's, it's 46 to 40, Dillingham comes out of the game. So Kentucky's minus 11 when Dillingham comes in. They're minus six when he when he leaves. So with Dillingham in the game for Kentucky, Kentucky's plus five. Do you see how this breaks down? Yeah. When, when, when Kentucky is playing with Dillingham in the game, the score is Kentucky plus five over Tennessee. It's only because you started the game 
behind 11 to nothing that you're behind by six because you waited to put your best team on the floor and your best player in the game until you were behind by 11 points. To make it to by halftime, it's clear that Dillingham is having a great game. He's hit five of six on threes, and he has, I think, 17 points, maybe 20 points at halftime, but I, th- I think 17. But anyway, he, at, at one point, he had half of Kentucky's points in, in the first half. And you have to start thinking, like, what in the world is going on with bringing this guy in off the bench? And how are we not talking about him as the best player on Kentucky's team and one of the best players in college basketball? So the second half starts, and here's what happens. Second half starts, Kentucky's behind by four, (laughs) right? They're behind by four. Dillingham starts the second half on the bench. So Dillingham has gone, Dillingham went five out of six on three-pointers and had 17 points in the first half. And how does the second half start? Justin Edwards, who had five points in the first half, takes the first two shots. And the same thing happens again. Kentucky goes from behind by four points to behind by seven points. And it's not until the 16-minute mark that Dillingham comes into the game. So, again, with Dillingham on the bench, you're minus points. You've fallen further behind. You're minus three. So, if you add it up, you start the game minus 11, and then you go minus three to start the second half, both of the times with Dillingham on the bench. How does that up? Minus 14. So Dillingham's not in the game for a cumulative seven and a half minutes. It's the start of the game and the start of the second half. And you're minus 14 with him on the bench. You lose the game by 11. So what does that tell you? Theoretically, if Dillingham plays the entire game, you win by three points. Now, of course, it wouldn't break down. It wouldn't happen exactly like that. But what what that theoretical scenario tells you is that it would have made a significant difference had Dillingham basically played the entire game. Certainly, if Dillingham had started the game and started the second half, he absolutely should have started the second half when it was clear that he was having a great game and that he was Kentucky's best player, and that without him, Kentucky didn't have the offense to keep up with Tennessee. But David, so David, coach, hold on a second. He was number three on the roster. I mean, come on, you can't do, you can't put him first. I mean, right. <laughs> exactly. what are you talking the coach about? Makes up his mind about who's going to be the star, who the best player is, who's going to get the shots and minutes before they've even played a game. And what materializes on the court means nothing to him. Now, the everyone's going to say that the problem is, like, Dillingham scores 35 points and you still lose. So that's not what the problem is. 
No, that is what the problem is. And here's where Calipari still doesn't understand the importance of offense. Just because Kentucky's offense has gotten better and they're finally shooting and making three-pointers doesn't mean it still can't get even better than it is. And if it could get better than it is from where it is now, they would have won against Florida and they would have won against Tennessee. And you think that, well, 35 points, you can't do better than that. Yes, you can. And I'm going to bring up a historic basketball game that occurred on January the 13th, 2009, that any real Kentucky basketball fan would remember. And that was the 54 points scored by Jody Meeks in Knoxville against Tennessee. Same team in Knoxville, not in Lexington, but a very similar scenario. In the first half, it was obvious that Jody Meeks, who guessed this, who, who get this, Dave, actually started for Kentucky <laughs> and played major minutes, right? Because he was their best player. Right. So he plays major minutes and he takes the most shots. That Kentucky team averaged 16 three-point attempts a game. Jody Meeks averages eight three-point attempts a game. This year's Kentucky team averages 24 three-point attempts a game. Dillingham averages four three-point attempts a game. It's more than four. I think it's like 4.6. Let's just go ahead and call it five. But we'll say, but to make the math easy, we'll say instead of the team averages 24 this year, it's 25. Dillingham averages five three-point attempts. Team average is 25. That's one-fifth. That's 20%. Jody Meeks, eight out of 16 attempts. That's 50%. You see what I'm getting at here? Like, the best player takes the most shots. (laughs) The one who's really good plays the most and takes the most shots. And if he can get 35 points with his jackass moron coach, keeping him on the bench and taking him out of the game every chance he gets. If he would just leave him in there and have him shoot every time he has the ball, he would score 60 points a game. And that's what you need to do because these other people just aren't that good. So in that Tennessee game on January 13, 2009, when Kentucky won 90-72, to Jody Meeks went 10 of 15 on three-pointers. In one game, he shot 15 threes. That's what Rod Dillingham should do. He should take 15 three-pointers a game. And anytime Kentucky has the ball and anyone besides Dillingham or Reed Shepard shoots, it's a waste of time. That is clearly what has developed with this team and what you would have found out three months ago if you had played any real basketball games, is you would have fast-forwarded it. You would have expedited figuring out what your team really is. Dillingham is the best player I have ever seen play for Kentucky. He can really shoot. He is unguardable. He is super quick and fast. He has a knack for scoring. You can't come up on him and guard him because, doom, he will blow by you. He has a rare combination of amazing ball handling ability, amazing quickness, 
and he can shoot the lights out. And he's a natural. He's a naturally gifted offensive player. He is Isaiah Thomas. He's Allen Iverson. And John Calipari is using him like he is a walk-on. That he's just a backup to put in there to give him a little boost on offense. Here's the way that you use a score off the bench. When your team is already a really good offensive team and the team that you put out there to start the game and to start the second half gets the lead and is ahead and is already playing well, then you bring someone else in to give you an even bigger boost on your offense. But when you start the game, and your offense sucks. It's stupid to wait and wait and wait to put your best player and the best player ever to play for Kentucky in the game. And that's why you <laughs> lost the game. Because Dillingham didn't score enough. He didn't shoot enough. He didn't play enough. And Kentucky didn't score enough. Now, now David, you are worked up on this, buddy. All right, you 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 did a slam dunk on Calipari's ass there. <laughs> you think uh, I need to go get some of my medical marijuana, yeah, man? You yeah. feel that? You don't worry about it. Hey, yeah. man, it's February. Well, I, I think I think you blowing off some steam there is cathartic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so listener, if you if for? yeah, if 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 you've made it to the the final minutes of this game, uh you are a winner. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Don't walk out on us like the fans walked out on John Calipari. I've never seen this before. Oh, really? I've never seen this huh. before. Huh. And as the pan, as the pan cools off before we sign off, I got to make this one last point. Here's never seen this before. This is Kentucky basketball. This is not Kentucky football. This is not some other team. This is Kentucky basketball. Mm-hmm. With, a, with a minute and 48 seconds to go, and it was a nine-point game, the fans were leaving in droves. Wow. They have had it. It wasn't just a few people leaving. It was in droves there's nearly two minutes left man that's a lot of time Mm -hmm. for there to be a mass exodus wow it's over (laughs) it is over historical example okay all you jackass kentucky fans that were jumping down my throat five years ago when i told you what was going on if you were a real kentucky fan you would also remember this game in january of 1987 Kentucky's playing Tennessee at home. With one minute to go, Tennessee is ahead by 10 points. The score is 75 to 65, Tennessee. With one minute to go, right? But it's Tennessee basketball, and they're in Rupp Arena, and it's going to be hard for them to pull this out. And guess what happens? Kentucky makes a comeback. The backcourt that year for Kentucky was Ed Davender and a player who I'm sure you've heard of, Dave, named Rex Chapman, 
from Owensboro, Kentucky. You've heard of Chapman, right? Yeah. And Chapman was awesome, man. Homegrown Kentucky player, 6'4", incredible leaper, and could really shoot. A scoring machine. Oh, and by the way, Chapman started for Kentucky. He wasn't the third player off the bench. Anyway, so Ed Davender hits a three-pointer. Chapman makes a, a couple of shots. Tennessee gets rattled. Kentucky cuts it to two. There's still about eight seconds to go. It's to, uh, Kentucky fouls Tennessee. One and one for Tennessee. The crowd gets loud, right, because no one's left because they still believe in Kentucky basketball because it is Kentucky basketball. We win. You can't win here. You can't win in here. You can't come into Rupp and win. That doesn't happen. You can't do it. You can't do it. And he misses. They give the ball to Chapman. He races down the floor, and he makes this baseline shot from the left baseline where he's falling away and to his left, this high-arcing shot. And he makes it with a defender right on him. And it goes into overtime, and Tennessee's done, and Kentucky beats their ass in overtime. That same thing could have happened, right? Like, there was more time left, and Kentucky was only down nine, not ten. But you could just feel it. Like, it's just, it's over. The coach is just such, is just so lost. Like, he can't handle it. He can't function just as a like be a human being with a brain and quit being this i am john calipari and only i know what basketball is and how to play thank you for not walking out on us it's a comeback no no they miss they get they get the ball over you down the court then he's got this it's for my colleague and co-host, David Vernon Miller, this is Dr. David Ovi. You've been listening to the Oblivion Podcast. <laughs>